iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Alison Rudd. As luck would have it, I have with me in the game podcast studio... A copy of Football, My Life, My Passion by Graham Souness. Even more fortunately, I have in the studio to discuss the book, the man himself, Graham Souness. Welcome. Thank you. Graham, um, with a book that is an autobiography, and I know you, you're somebody who doesn't like looking back, you're a looking forward sort of guy, but you have to look back and you do touch upon your childhood and you do say... You're not entirely sure why you are the character you are, because your parents were were delightful, pleasant, mild-mannered people. Um, you didn't have any uh, awful things happen to you in your upbringing to give you something to uh, work against or fight against or prove yourself for. So I was reading it and thinking, why, why is he the way he is? And the only clues to me are that your father had talent as a footballer and it, mm-hmm. he wasn't able to go anywhere with the career because he broke his leg and then there was a small matter of a world war I wonder if maybe even subconsciously you knew it would make your father happy if you were able to fulfil the dreams he couldn't have had for himself I've never thought of that but I I, um, I knew when I once I become a professional footballer how happy it made him, he never mentioned it but I knew how proud he was but I I can't honestly I can never say that I was doing it because I wanted him to be Sort of, maybe I'm too selfish for that. Never, I wasn't doing it sort of make him proud or happy for me. It was all. It was more more about me. What I wanted. Does that make me sound really selfish? I mean, I want to please my parents at every yes. turn, but I, I didn't go out to be a professional footballer to make him happy. I, I, I don't believe that. But I know it made him very happy. But do you think then that he subtly guided you towards success because he wanted it, but? It- he, he, he wasn't the sort of chap to just bang on about it, but he might have... No, he encouraged me, but he, you know, I wouldn't say he was... He left me to my own devices, really. I think my mother pushed me more than maybe my dad. I can remember um, her saying to me when I was maybe 13, 14, you seem to have lost interest in football. I was way ahead of my years as a young boy. You know, I played in my brother's team, who was four years older than me. I played in his school team in the cup final. So they drafted me in. Yeah. You know, I was always the best player in the, in the school teams well as I saw it and I saw that when I was, I saw that when I was 31 as well so you I are know. I think you're the I don't know 50th sports person I've interviewed who had older siblings who were mm. quite good at the sport that the younger sibling became excellent at because you're always Enormous playing advantage. above your le- exactly. level exactly two things you've always got someone to play with and you're always playing with people who are better than you and you know in my case you know brothers were considerably older one was four one was eight I was being tested you know you get you get put on your backside you couldn't sit on your backside too long because if on the way back they would kick you when you were down as well not just my brothers and so you you know you learn to look after yourself pretty quickly but nowadays they try and clamp down on that for health and safety reasons yeah. which is yeah. a bad thing do you think um I'm not saying there was I'm not saying I'm not suggesting there was violence in my no, I mean the playing with older boys. No, and, not and at all. 
How else do you get? I, I believe in any sport you have to play with people better than you. To become better, pulling you on, you have to play with people better than you. That's um, a big issue in women's football. Um, they let, in other countries that are, do well in women's sport, they let the women play with boys as long as mm. they want. Yeah. Because that's how you get better. Well, I think that's common sense. Yes. That's, that's how it works. I've mm. made a few notes of um, pages in your book. I just like a tiny expansion of detail mm-hmm. upon. And as we're talking about your youth and how you came to be who you are... You, you just mentioned in passing in the book, one summer I went with a friend and his family on holiday to Butlins and won the Body Beautiful yeah. competition. And it made me think, oh, well, how old were you exactly? And were you an exhibitionist? I would have, been, I would have been 10. And I put my parents under real pressure because then, of course, they had to save up as a sort of market employee by Butlins at the time. So they give out this, this um, certificate to see you've got a, a free week, but... You have to come with your parents, so they have to dig in and spend the money to get you. Uh, I was an exhibitionist hardly at 10 years old. I, I just, you know, when you think of it, I wasn't with my own parents. I must have been the parents of my pals who made me go in it. I'm not going to want to go in a body beautiful competition at 10, am I? Or am I? Well, I think a lot of kids would not enter a body beautiful competition yeah. at 10, would be shy to do that. I think well, it's an I, early I've sign. I've never been associated with, being, with shyness. Yes. I'm lacking confidence. But a lot of people who act confident and would be described as bold and maybe even brash or controversial are inside quite shy and they're almost overcompensating. But the fact that you were entering competitions and doing things that other kids would be inhibited about. winning, excuse me. Winning. (laughs) And winning. And winning, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, did you know you would win it? Do you remember the feeling? Do you remember? Would you have been humiliated if you entered a body beautiful competition and not won it? No, I I would have just thought judges don't know what they're on about. Really? (laughs) (laughs) You see, I think that says quite a lot. Uh, another page I just made a note of. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, doing, I'm not going to do this very often. There's just a couple of things I just, just wanted to... Um... Oh, this is a question. This is a really Graham Sooness, was this true? Because I don't remember this. You say you've signed for Liverpool now and you talk about Liverpool with a scalp for the other teams to take. And you say some teams would do a lap of honour if they got a draw at Anfield against us. Are you, are you, are you making a joke there or is that true? No. Well, not not necessarily a lap of honour, but they would they would go to their own supporters and applaud them and and linger. Right. They're not going to run to the cop with a draw. I mean, I, to be fair to the Liverpool supporters in those days, if someone did get a result against us and they deserved it, they would applaud them. Yeah. No, but I, I think that's more of a reference to they've they've dug out a draw. They go to their own supporters and they would stay on Anfield and enjoy the adulation from their own support. How did it? make you feel when you saw opposition players so delighted just to have got a draw? Um, it's well, double-edged, f- isn't it? Yeah, the first emotion is that you've only drawn that day and you're angry with yourself. And then you'd sort of take that anger out and them, I suppose, maybe call them a few names amongst ourselves. Yes. Now, I've got a... Um, I'm not sure this is a confession. It's true. I, I got my break in um, sports writing because I engineered a behind-the-scenes visit to Anfield in 1992. I was just able to wander around, going to the players' lounge, Mm -hmm. meet the players, and I knew, having done that, I would be able to write a piece and I would get it published in a national paper and that could be the start of my Mm -hmm. showing people I could write about sport. You were the manager that day 
Chelsea won 2-1. It was the mm. first time they'd won at Anfield since the 60s. Dennis Wise scored the winner. I walked past your office as Mark Wright was leaving and he was crying. It was my first insight into the other side of being a player and he was trembling. He came into the players' lounge and he did speak to me, but he was trembling. And I always thought after that, I just loved to have been a fly on the wall for how you, the manager, could, I don't know, do that. Do you, a, do you remember that day? And B, do you regret being that hard on a player? Or C, do you think that sums up very well what an uncompromising manager you were? Um, a, I don't remember it. B, do I have regrets of the way I was in management um, in the earlier days, most certainly. I, I went back to Liverpool believing, you know, this I'm back to the greatest club in the world. You know, when I was a player, if I could have gone to Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, anywhere, I would have chosen Liverpool above any of them. So when I go back there, I still feel that about the club. Given the success I did as a player, it was a very, very special place for me. I, when I went back as manager, made too many demands on players. I, I now fully get it. I didn't get it then, but I fully get it now why players... You know why some players just can't have the same passion and and feel as miserable when you lose as I did, and that my that would show itself in frustration. You know, I'd shout and have a moan at some of them, um, and that was misguided passion on my behalf. I should have backed off. It's it's a very different game now. I mean, I, I um I made many mistakes as a manager, but I got lots of things right as well. You you know you don't you know the experience I had as a player. And as a manager, in the first job, second job, yeah, you continue to make mistakes. Wenger will still make mistakes. Um, Fergie would have made mistakes right up to his last season. But as long as you're getting more right than, than wrong, and you learn from your mistakes, you keep going forward. I think I know what you're going to say to this, but so I'll try and phrase it so that you go in another direction. But if you were forced back in time and you could only replay your management years at Anfield, do you think it would have been possible with nothing changing other than your extra wisdom now, that you would have had a different time as manager there? No, I, I see the Liverpool job. Did I make mistakes? Most certainly. I, I, see, I, I didn't at the time because I was, I was a young man who had had his first job in management and great success and turned a, a giant round. And I thought, I know Liverpool Football Club, I'll be successful there. Well, I, I, I never stood back at any time and looked at it and thought, hey, why am I getting the job? You don't get a job at a, a football club unless it has major problems. Um, they hadn't won anything for a couple of years. I think everyone was still suffering. And to a degree, I think the, the club's still suffering from Hillsborough. You know, that the tragedy, you know, how it affected the players and everyone in, connected with the club. And, and indeed the city, you know. I don't care who got the job at that time. And this is about like whoever got the job after Fergie, you aren't going to be successful. Oh, but I mean that makes it sound like nothing. You just you, you genuinely feel no matter what extra knowledge you brought to the job, it couldn't have been better. I think when you follow twenty years of non-stop success, it's very hard to keep that going where that club was at that time. Right. I took that job on. I had a team of the majority of them were over thirty, three players, senior players, very good players, who still had a bit of life in it in them. Come to me instead, had a chance to go somewhere else, three year contract somewhere else, good to go. Um, my attitude should have been to that was I hear you, 
let me get replacements for you. But instead, because of the the pedestal I put that football club on, what you want to leave for you can go tomorrow. Get them to phone me this afternoon. You can go tomorrow. That's what I've said to them. Something else linked to that in the book I just wanted you to expand on. Page 168. You say you should have quit after your heart operation in 92. There was a fiore over your exclusive photographs in the sun, recuperating in hospital. But you say you struggled on uh, until January 1994 after an FA Cup replay defeat to Bristol City. You say, I was in the Holiday Inn beforehand and could hear Russell Osman, their manager, saying, if we're aggressive and match them for effort, some of them don't like it and they'll roll over. And you thought to yourself, you're spot on. I just wondered, was that hearing that, did that crystallise for you? I've got to go, or would would you have gone regardless of hearing that, or did it just bring it forward by 10 minutes, your decision to uh, quit? How did that well, impact? Because that, that, that's a horrible um, thing to hear through a wall. Yeah. That, I was, I was actually through doors. I was in a suite, and I think the suite had been blocked off, and I could hear that was their meeting room, as chance would have it. And, and Russell Osman was describing my team as a team with a soft underbelly, and he was right can stand up to the physical challenge, then you're more than capable of beating the slot. You know, listen, that was a cup tie. You know, before me and after me, Liverpool have had some shocks in the cups. That's that's part of cup football. But, you know, I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't, I didn't feel I was we were making any strides forward. I knew that was a, a good percentage of the support would never forgive me for dealing with the Sun newspaper, but that's no one's fault but mine. Um, and when you feel you can't, improve anyone or any team it's time to go and that's what I decided but that, that, that hearing result, that did that the fact that you've brought that you've, that you've put that into the book I just wondered if yeah, someone that, describing you a team that has your name on it when you were uncompromising and didn't have a soft underbelly in any respect to hear mm. someone say a team that represent you have one I just wondered how significant a moment that was yeah, yeah you listening to it being repeated to me now yeah, I would not have been happy. I can't remember what those thoughts were 25 years ago. But I know I would not have been happy. On the other side of the coin, you know, it's a small team coming to Anfield. You're wanting, if I'm Russell Osman, I'm going to say similar things, I suppose. Yeah. You know, they don't fancy it if you're strong and aggressive against them. Which really is any small team's chance of beating a big team. They can't say we're going to go out and out-football them. So I suppose that's a team talk that you would have heard in any dressing room where a small team plays a big team. But it, yeah, it hurt me, and that's how I saw. That's how I saw my team. Yeah. That they could be rolled over. That's unacceptable for me. Yeah. Get beat, but don't get beat by not having a real goal. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
you're actually quite modest or at least understated in the book about your relationship with Bob Paisley. There's another book out by Ian Herbert, which you cooperated with, about Bob Paisley's life. And it's very clear in that book that Bob Paisley relied on you very heavily, almost adored you, I would say. Do you, is that how you... Is that a fair I, summary? I, I had a really good relationship with him. I like to think I, I did. You know, then I become a manager and then you, you do have your favourites. It's, it's impossible not to have your favourites, the ones that you know you can rely on. You know the ones that are good around the dressing room, the ones you rely on on match day, the ones that won't let you down, the ones that will do things right. And I like to think um, I had a good relationship with them. I knew Liverpool were interested in me because my great friend Phil Borsma had been sold by Liverpool to Middlesbrough. We were, we'd lived in digs together, hung out together, did everything together. And, and Phil was really friendly with a guy called Bob Rockliffe who had a wheat sheaf garage in West Derby. And Bob Paisley used to go into that garage every morning to pick his horses. He was friendly with Bob, the garage owner as well. So when Liverpool wanted to buy me, that's how the message got back to me. From Bob Paisley to Bob Rockliffe to Phil Borsman to me. And then I actually I went to live in West Derby, which is where the training ground, where Melwood is. And so I would take my kids to school in the morning, come back and I'd pop into the garage because I, I became friendly with Bob. And I'd see Bob in there and it would have five minutes together and then he'd go off to Anfield and I would hang around a bit and then I'd go off to Anfield. And when someone like Bob Paisley says, you're going to be the captain, it means something. Yeah. You know, with the players he's known at the football club and, and other players who were at the, in the team at the time he could have chose from, you know, it means something. It's not, you know, somebody who's just new to management, who's not had great choices to make. He's, he's got some fabulous players he could have made captain before me. So that meant something. So when you analyse that, I suppose he, he, he thought something of me. I suppose the closest I got to him would have been in the year... He, he said he was going to resign. And I must have gone to maybe half a dozen, half a dozen, eight dinners, you know, where there were people who were sort of paying tribute to him and he was going. And what I witnessed was a man who was really shy, who never really spoke at team meetings, who wasn't comfortable speaking to an audience, never mind a group of footballers, he never spoke to us very much, um, to someone who, who became a really, really good after-dinner speaker. Yeah. Made the audience laugh. You know, knew when to tell a joke, tell a little story, another joke. And it was something that I was amazed in because I see him every day. And he was a man of few words. He had a sense of humour, which, you know, of course, what he achieved in the game when he spoke to an audience, he captivated them. Yeah. Well, maybe he wasn't the best man for you to learn from because he was a man of so few words. The laugh out loud moment in the Ian Herbert book is that they would, the guys would all carry in a table so they could put all the little Sabutio yeah. people out and then it was never ever used. Never he'd, just say, he'd just say to you, you're better than this lot, go and win. Yeah. Old Eli used to struggle in every Friday, <laughs> every Friday with the biggest Sabutio table you've ever seen, put two teams out, four, four, two formations and in my seven years no one ever referred to it. <laughs> but how do you, Graham Sinus, the manager, learn anything from that? Um, well... I suppose, I mean, what's the only manager I worked under? You see now, when you analyse, or when I analysed what Liverpool were about, there's far more to it. I'll talk about, you know, my very first game, and I'll talk about my last game. And I think that sums up, you know, in seven years, what it was like at the football club. But now, when I look back, and the little subtle things I said, I went to Ronnie Moran's funeral six months ago, and I took my young son James with me. And up in Crosby and Merseyside, and I and I came away saying, you know what, James, the single biggest influence on my career was Ronnie Moran. 
there was no watershed moment where he said, took me on the training ground and said, this is how you play, this is what you're doing. It was an everyday thing where he made you feel, ah, you're a good player and you're part of a good team, but you're not like the players and the teams we've had here in the past. And he made us strive to be better every day in a very subtle and sometimes, you know, it would be harsh. Yeah. He would say, you know, not personally to me, but he would say something to some people. But, um, see, when looking back there, there was, you know, like, Ronnie would still play. There were certain players were always on Ronnie's team. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was on, Ray Kenny was on, Jimmy Case was on. You know, he knew the ones that were going to win the five-a-side. Yeah. You know, he's always picked Kenny. He was a, but get me because Kenny wasn't the best five-a-side player, but he was the best moaner, best <laughs> best one at arguing about decisions. <laughs> so, I mean, never lost a five-a-side, I don't think. But, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie in a very, very subtle some sometimes and less subtle other times, kept you on your toes. Yes. You know, you know the story about that. The start of the season, they'd come in with a box. Second or third day of pre-season training into into the dressing room, he'd throw it on the table there and he'd say, ah, there's medals in there for what you won last year. If you played enough games and if you think you deserve one, take one. And then he'd leave the room and we knew one second, <laughs> two seconds, three So It's always sort of three or four seconds and his head would pop round. And by the effing way, you get nothing this season for what's in that box. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's... And I can remember um, being at the back of the bus with them. It might have been a European Cup we had one. And Joe saying, you know, across the the um, the bus, well, Joe, I think that keeps us on a job for next year, don't you? Well, maybe until Christmas, Ronnie. You know, that, that was, they were on their toes. They kept us on our toes. Yeah. Um, it was a very, very special place. And you talk about um, responsibility. I touched on a book on responsibility and how the modern player really doesn't want responsibility, doesn't take any. Every whim is taken care of, how they're made to, you know, they are precious, they have to be directed, have to be taken everywhere, someone holding their hand. You know, they're looking from the pitch to the touchline for help all the time. It's always a manager's fault, it's always the preparation, the selection, substitutions, didn't prepare properly, hotel, pillars in the hotel, it's always someone else's fault. And it's relevant, it's not a it's not a big-headed statement. I'm transferred from Middlesbrough to Liverpool for a record transfer fee between two English clubs. And the first week of training was the usual, which was the same for seven years. Walk around Melwood, jog around Melwood, a few three-quarter sprints, six-a-side sprints and home. So that was Monday to Friday with a day off. We are playing West Brom away. I'm in the dressing room, quarter to three. I'm looking around. John, I remember John Toshak was there but wasn't playing, had a thigh strain. Callahan was there, Tommy Smith was there, Steve Highway was there, Clem was there, big players, Emlyn, big, big players. And I'm there and they're, you know, they're all joking and messing around and no one's really talking about the game. So at quarter to three I've said to Joe, and Joe spoke in a quiet voice, and when he spoke to him, you had to lean into him. And I said, Joe, can I have a word with you? He said, yes, son. So I'm I'm saying to him, and they sort of, a voice that's loud enough for him to hear, but not for the rest of the drive. I said, Joe, look, I've been here a week. No one's said anything to me. No one's told me how to play. How do you want me to play? He said, F off, son. We've spent all this effort and money on you, and you're asking me how to play football. He walked away shaking his head. I never, ever asked again. Now, can you imagine the dressing room today? A, that I've been coached up to the the hill, yeah. that everything they were to do at a set piece would be drilled into them. What Liverpool had at that time was all about Another saying you would have you heard every day at Anfield from Ronnie or Joe, work it out for yourself, son. They give you the responsibility to deal with it. And they would also say, just have a look at the guys next to you. Learn from them. 
and that's the senior pros. And those it made they, they they sort of all the responsibility was put onto your shoulders to deal with the problems. You deal with it. Yeah. They'll come. You'll deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, you won't be here very long. It made you a quick learner. We are um, speaking just after um, Ronald Koeman has been sacked, Graham. Who do you think would be the perfect replacement to? I've, I've no idea. I mean, obviously the boy Sean Deitch will be mentioned in there. Um, you know, when you're making those decisions, I gave up many years ago trying to work out who would be a good manager and who wouldn't. You know, players I've played with, players I've had play for me as a manager, and you think he'd make a good manager. I think it's such a large slice of luck. There wouldn't have been a person 18 months ago that said Ronald Koeman was a bad appointment. No. No, there wouldn't be. Just no one. You wouldn't have found one. The job he did at Southampton, and then he goes to Everton, um, and it went well for him last year. Then you go and spend 150 million. I've only got some big money back in for Lukaku. But they've still spent 100 and whatever million. And that's where the pressure comes. All of a sudden, expectation level goes through the roof from the Evertonians. Us journalists highlight the problems. <laughs> if you were Sean Dyche, having built what you've built at Burnley on a shoestring and doing so well this season, would do you think you'd be tempted or would you want to see out the project at Burnley? What is a project? How well, can you go with that? Yeah, I mean, that has to be tempting to know how, how high up you could go. Well, you can, best you can get to mid-table, can't you? I think for, for, for Sean Dyche... The question he has to ask himself is, will I get offered a better one than this? I'm not sure if he will. Would you know Everton? Everton are a fabulous football club. Everton, you know, look like they've got money to spend now. Uh, talk of a new stadium, or there's a new stadium. Um, Merseyside is a fabulous place to be if you're if you're doing well in football. You know, the supporters treat you royally uh, as long as you're winning. Um, I don't know. It's a difficult. One. I don't know how he sees his career, but. On the face of it, Sean Dyche, mid-table, would he get offered a Man City, a Man United, a Liverpool, Tottenham, Chelsea? No, I don't think so. I think the next step for him has to be an Everton. Yeah. I don't see how how he could get offered any of the really big ones coming straight from Burnley. And we're also speaking before Liverpool's home game against Huddersfield, but regardless, Graham, is there... A defensive unit in the Premier League, you would not swap for the defence of Liverpool. You would not swap. Yeah. Is there a, is there a defence in the Premier League that you would say, no, 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 I'll keep what Liverpool have got? Yeah, I think there are. Really? Yeah. How many would you guess there are? Oh, well, I would say there's there's quite a few. Really? Yeah. You being diplomatic? No, I think they they have leaked goals. And, and, and Only Palace have conceded more. Yeah, I know, but it's not always just about your back four and your 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 goalkeeper. And, and at times they have been poor, and we witnessed that at Wembley with Spurs. But you know, if you were to if you were to go in there, which you can't at Liverpool, if you were to go in and 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 say right from now on we're going to play a different type of football. It's not going to be as expensive. Our aim is not to concede goals. With, this, with those same players, you could do that and improve them greatly in terms of not conceding goals. But then you're sacrificing what you get going forward because you'd be filling your midfield, A, with a different type of player or coaching those midfield players to be different types. Don't go and join in as much. Never go in front of the ball. Always have two behind, Always have two midfield players behind the ball so our back four are never exposed. But you're sacrificing the kind of football he wants to play. 
So th there are worse defenders, um, collectively worse units. At Liverpool right now, it's individuals that are letting them down. They've, you know, they've got a couple of decent defenders, but I would suggest on the left-hand side with the Moreno, whose strength is going forward, and with Lovren, that's the side you would target if you're playing against Liverpool tomorrow. I haven't touched upon your international career. I wondered, you may have spoken about this, and I, if you did, I apologise, I missed it, but what, when Gordon Strachan said Scotland are genetically at a disadvantage to succeed on the world stage, did did you do a, a double take, a comedy double take, or did you think, oh, yes, I, I get that? I understand what he's saying, but we've, we've competed in the past, haven't we? But he says now he's up against teams that weren't very highly ranked in the past and they're all very big. You're not going to change um, genetics in a human over three decades, are you? I understand what he's saying. I think when you look at the when you look at who England have to choose from, they had you know a big they they've got players that are sort of maybe second third generation from other countries. England, you know, have some big powerful men now. That sort of the gene pool has been varied, different to what the Scottish one is. You know, big we had in England. You had um, immigrants coming from all over the place. And some of those lads now are, are sort of second and third generation here. But when We've you, never had that in Scotland. When you played for Scotland, did you ever think, oh, we're a bit, we're a bit smaller than the opposition? I or never thought that. Never thought that. Oh, well, I personally wasn't. When you've watched Scotland lately, have you thought, they're all a bit diddy? But not all, a bit, a bit lightweight in some areas. Yeah. But then, <laughs> then you look at Spain. Yes. It wins the World Cup, a couple of Euros. Yeah. No, they were diddy, in yeah. your words. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, is it? No. But I think right now, Scotland are in a poor cycle, have been for a period of time now. We're just not producing the players that are good enough to get us to a World Cup or a Euros. Going back, and everyone knows that historically all the big teams in England, this is pre-Premier League, they all had a couple of Scotsmen in, in, in their teams that were not just there to make the numbers up. Some cases, top men. That's not the case anymore. But I would also suggest that England don't have a very good, very good group at this time. I think they're limited. And again, I don't. You know, as a as an inter, international manager, you can't go out and buy anyone. You're working with a group that the country's served up at that time. That's one problem, and you don't have enough time with them to change their their way of playing, you get them so for so few days to work with them, it's a, it's a very difficult job. I, I'm not saying England couldn't have a really good World Cup. If you go back to Italy with, I'm trying to think the years it was, with Scalacci mm -hmm. and Rossi, yeah. you know, not very good Italian teams, but went all the way. England could do that with Harry Kane. Ah, oh, there's something about Italy, though. Something about the way they peak well, at the right time. Yeah, they know how to, they know how to um, defend and win games when they're not at their best. Yeah, yeah. Would you um, indulge the game podcast with a quick fire round? Yes. Thank you. Gardening. You mm, like gardening? Very much. This time of year, Graham. your top no. tips. No, I don't like this time of year because the gardens look sad. All the leaves are coming off the trees. you just got to make sure that, you know, especially if you've got a nice lawn, you've got to do a wee bit of work on that. Get it scarified, get the um, moss killer on it. Do you do that? Or you pay someone to do I that. I pay someone to do that. I do cut the grass. Right. I will scarify if I've, you know, I've got a decent sized garden, but I will do bits of it if I think it needs it. 
It's a good word, Scarify, isn't yeah. it? I dare you to get that into the next football analysis you do yeah. on Sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get that. In. Give me. A, let me think, think about that. I think one. it's possible. I think it's possible. If you could only listen to one piece of music again in your life, what would it be? Mm. Our national anthem, the Scottish national anthem, as well as God Save the Queen. But Flower of Scotland's a, a stirrer, isn't it? Good answer. Who's better, the Ruttles or the Beatles? The Ruttles. Mm -hmm. Who are, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the Ruttles. Wow. Wow. It's amazing that you don't know that. I'll fill you in later. What's your favourite film of all time? <sighs> Gangs of New York. Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay. like that, yeah. Good. But historical. Do you still like a gin and tonic? I certainly do. I okay. certainly do. Did That's the only spirit I drink. I'll, I'll have a glass of champagne. Uh, I, I like my wine, and a gin and tonic is the only spirit I'll drink, and, and that's and that's just coming from a Scotsman. <laughs> is it? Well, there is that famous time when you handed in your notice, and then Old Pace said, well, "I'm not having that." But you'd already had three gin and tonics, three gin and tonics before yeah. the game. But you played, came off the bench and played, and yeah. Liverpool won, so it was fine. No, no, we got a draw. We oh, were two nil down at half time. Oh, right, felt like I think a win. Kenny got both goals. But was that the only time in your entire life you've drunk on the day of the match before kick off? 100% no. Okay. Do you get angry? Do you get angry? <laughs> They're going to ask me when. It's not quick fire. Okay, go on then. When have you drunk before um, the match? We, we had won the league and we went to we went to open a shop for the late Willie Madrin, a sports shop. Yes. Up in Middlesbrough, we were playing there. And we were all in the sports shop and the bloody floor collapsed. And we ended up in the basement. <laughs> Fortunately, no one injured. And we... Um, Went to the pub after that. Because you were all stressed. Yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> we're all stressed, yeah. And um, I can remember we got a, we got a nil-nil draw that night. We'd already won the league. We got a nil-nil draw that night, and I played centre-forward for the last 20 minutes. And how much had you drunk? More than three G&Ts on that one? Is three mm -hmm. G&Ts the most you've drunk before a game? Um, that one game may have been slightly more than that. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Mind you, I used to play regularly with a bloke who went to the pub before the match. So mm. it's, it's normal to me. Final quickfire question. How angry do you get, if at all, when people spell Graham incorrectly and throw in an H? Don't get angry at all. Listen, he, I'm, with having a life in football, I'm used to being called all sorts of things. There's nothing I haven't been called. Uh, it didn't, didn't bother me then and it doesn't bother me now. What's your favourite nickname that you've ever had? I don't have a favourite one, but you know, if I was if I was in the company of all any of my Liverpool teammates, it'd be Charlie. Oh, yeah. But wasn't that for awkward reasons? No, it was um, because I like champagne. Yeah, good time, Charlie. Not good time, champagne. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that's a myth as well. I, I was a really good pro. I was a good trainer, and I was not much of a drinker. But you had expensive tastes. Yeah, yeah, that's. That was a problem. Is a problem. Graeme Souness, thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. 
That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.